I was told by the state, if you think the federal government's wrong, it's a letter on exactly why. And I think they thought that was it. They're like, yeah, we got this kid. We checked the box. And I did. I came back with a 30-page letter on why the federal government was not their whole explanation on regulating this product was flawed and wrong. And their idea that they had to be beholden to treaty obligations was just flat out incorrect. That leads me to think too, if I had the the money and the cojones to do it, I could have probably sued the government, the federal government and won. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields. I'm with me, as always, is my guy, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, a second Kellen in the building, Kellen Cassetter. How you doing, Kellen? I'm doing excellent. I'm doing excellent. Yeah, and this is going to be confusing here with Kellen and, and myself, but it's okay. I've dealt with it before, and it'll, it'll be all right. <laughs> I will try to do a better job deviating. Other Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. And honestly, the same name thing really helps ease the the East Coast favoritism today. <laughs> yeah. So I guess before we get started, it's very important to state exactly where you're located, Kellen. Yeah. I've been based out of New York my entire life, but right now we're based out of Manhattan. I'm in the uh, our Manhattan office, which is in Rockefeller Center. But we do work all over the states. Just before we got on, we were chatting about how um, I just got back from uh, Buffalo yesterday work with a lot of great businesses out there and, and the state's massive. And it's just, it's really great to see all the different ideas and these regions develop their own identity within cannabis, you know? Yeah. And it's a really exciting time, especially here in New York. So I guess before we dive into the state of New York and some of those other areas, can you take us back before, was there a time before you got into cannabis? Can you tell us a little bit how you got into the space? Yeah, I've been in cannabis my entire life. My father had started hemp-infused wine when I was, before I was born, actually, technically. And so in the late 90s, he developed that business. It became nationwide. And so my earliest memories, you know, I was like three, four years old, is traveling with him to the New York State Fair and sleeping in the booth as he sold wine in the wine pavilion there. When I started college at, at Binghamton University, I decided to try to restart uh, the venture, the hemp infused wine venture. And that was back in 2015. And ever since then, you were the first licensed processor in the state of New York. And ever since I've just been knee deep and that's been my life is cannabis here in, in the Empire State. I love it. So I want to talk right about the hemp infused wine. Can you tell us like what that is, what that's like, how does it taste and, and a little origin? You need to taste it, right? Like I'm not going to give it justice. My dad is excellent at explaining hemp infused wine, but essentially what it was is it was a terpene, a hemp derived terpene that we put in the wine and it just, it gave the wine an added layer of depth and this smooth, earthy roundness to the finish that was unbelievably unique. And so we always used to say we're a wine product that we're using a hemp derived ingredient to enhance. We're not a hemp product that has wine, right? This isn't going to get you high. There's no CBD in it. There's no medicinal benefits. We are going to compete. And we actually uh, won a double blind, but we got we placed in, in, in a double blind, we got a bronze medal and a double blind, the Finger Lakes International Wine Competition. So we were in the blend category. So no one knew it was hemp-infused wine. These judges were tasting it. And they said, wow, this is really good. And we meddled. That's huge. At that point, we really knew. And then our wine was in the, the Rosé Mansion. Our Rosé was. And uh, that was huge. We felt really great about it until the feds shut us down at the beginning of 2020. It's on the shelf. Got a lot of reserve bottles. And uh, at some point, I think the regulatory landscape will open up for us to bring it back. I think that's really well said, and I know you're really involved there, so I'm excited to dive into some of those topics, but I want to go to to Kellen Finney on that. Have you heard anyone doing that? And also, like, that's pretty unique from a standpoint from, we've spoken to a lot of people in the space. That's the first time I've heard that. How about yourself? 
That is the first time I've heard it. I've seen, I saw like a hemp vodka maybe two years ago out in California and I tried it and I was like, well, it just tastes like vodka, right? Like I haven't heard it with wine or even beer. And, and I, the only thing I have heard is integrating CBD, right? Mm-hmm. Just the cannabinoid, not the actual flavor profile to enhance the current like chemical constituent that's present in wine. So my first question was, is there a specific like hemp strain that you guys had to focus on when you were developing that wine? Or is it, how did that whole thing come to fruition? So the context is we were doing this in 2016 and then 2017 in terms of R&D. And what we had, what I had was the description of what the wine tasted like in the 90s. I didn't remember what it tasted like. The wine at that point had been, it, it wasn't good anymore. And so it was basically me trying to figure out, and my dad had no idea because what he was doing is he was getting a hemp extract from the border, the German Dutch border and bringing it into the United States and infusing it into the wine. And that was the extent of it. At this time, there wasn't as many conversations about terpenes. The hemp industry was very nascent in terms of especially cannabinoid hemp growing. And so I just, we tried, started with seed oil, right? That's the most logical hemp oil, always hemp seed oil. Started with that and it tastes like shit in wine. It tastes terrible. And so we're, we're going through all this and, and actually... It was me connecting in with Bluebird Botanicals, which was a small startup at the time. They had a little office in in Broomfield, Colorado. And I went out there. So they actually, what what happened was, is they sent me, they said, actually, we think we might have something for you. Because I described what I was doing. I was like, all right. And they sent it, they sent me the tracking information. And I got this, and I'm sure some of you are listening to me familiar with this, but I got an email saying, your package is at the post office. <laughs> so I go down to the post office and they ask for my ID and everything like that. And they hand over the package and all of a sudden the entire post office smells like blood. <laughs> and I was like, wait, this could be it. <laughs> and I brought it to my dad and immediately he was like, I think we're close here. Like, I think this is probably it. And so we did. So for, they used it in the formulation of their CBD products. And so for, for a few years, that, that's what we used. We used, I don't know if it was strain specific at all. It was, it was coming in it was coming from Colorado and it actually led. So that, that question though, Helen, that's why we stepped into the research pilot program in New York state, we wanted to start growing hemp specifically matching the genetics with what we wanted to see in the wine. And we started to think, Hey, maybe for a cab, we want a different terpene profile than for our Cayuga white. That's smart. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that was what we were, you know, driving at there is, is figuring that. And now just now really has terpenes really advanced to a point where you can start to do that and you can start to pick and choose the flavors that you want. So many questions. My first one would be, has anyone, like that has to be something where someone on the West Coast has seen this and been like, we need to start this program immediately. And then my second question would be, let's say five years from now, is there a potential for cannabinoid infused wine? Is that something you've kicked around, at least thought about internally? Take us through that thought process. Yeah, that's a great question. To start off with, in terms of competition, right? And we, my dad was the first, obviously. And we're talking about the 90s. And we were the first because of the continuation. And we were the only for a time. You start to see other products try to hit the market. The reason why it hasn't been copied, because it's a good product. And it's definitely been tasted by people way more capitalized than we were at the time and much bigger infrastructure in terms of wine. The TTB, the feds do will not allow it. And so you start to see in California, non-alcoholic, THC infused or CBD infused. Yeah, there was a temperer beer. 
don't know if you remember that, by, by New Belgium. And what they did is they used botanically derived terps to try to match the profile. And you can't do it. You just can't do it botanically derived terps. It's got to come from the source. And you see some like seed, hemp extract seed infused wine. It was like one out of Texas. But yeah, and that's why no one's ever done it again is because the TTB, there's no path. There's no path to the TTB. And we anguished. We spent years on it. And right now there's no path. They, they want the FDA to approve hemp derived terpenes as grass is generally recognized as safe. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. And also in California, where like the main wine industry is, they California just got their act together to grow hemp. So they weren't even able to grow hemp or the whole CBD and THC worlds were separate. So I could see why they're, no one could even touch it. And I mean, Lagunitas, right? They got in a lot of trouble too, because they started putting CBD in their beer. And so there is some challenges. What the T- TTB, what does that say? Tobacco Tax Trade Bureau. And oh, so wow. what happened after 9-11 was the ATF they regulate alcohol. Well, they split the TTB off. So the TTB is actually in the treasury department and their main function is to collect tax on, there's a federal excise tax, but they also do all the label and formula approvals. And every state defers to the federal government, the TTB, in terms of, you know, whether their product can be sold or not. Do you have a TTB label? New York state was the same way. We actually got the first wine label approval for just New York state in state liquor authority history. What was that process like? It was challenging. It was why I think I've charted this course in being so involved in policy. Because I, I saw firsthand how this affects businesses and also a certain part of it. I, I, I enjoy it. I think it's fun. That process culminated in a meeting with myself, my father, three attorneys from the State Liquor Authority, and Chairman Bradley himself at a table talking through this issue. And then at the end of that, going, all right, I think we've got a solution here. And, and they figured it out. Credit to Governor Cuomo's office at the time, Donald Lepardo, who's our assemblywoman, she really pushed that. And yeah, they said, all right, we're going to allow you to do this. But Agam Markets, who was regulating the, the hemp pilot program, they said, they're going to have to cover you somehow. And they said, all right, let's create this processing license. And you're the first process. Uh, yeah. So that it was, uh, it was tough. And basically, I was told by the state, if you think the federal government's wrong, it's a letter on exactly why. And I think they thought that was it. They're like, yeah, we got this kid. We checked the box. And I did. I came back with a 30-page letter on why the federal government was not, their whole explanation on regulating this product was flawed and wrong. And their idea that they had to be beholden to treaty obligations was just flat out incorrect. That leads me to think too, if I had the the money and the cojones to do it, I could have probably sued the government, the federal government and won. But uh, that's not always the best idea. <laughs> I love the mindset though, the approach, right? They're like, hey, write us a letter. And you're like, absolutely, I will. So I guess my question is, who'd you address that to? Is it dear Mr. President, dear White House? <laughs> to start that, because for me, when I start a letter, it's like, all right, who am I writing to? Yeah, it's just to the SLA, right? Yeah. To the State Liquor Authority. And it went to their attorneys. And I think after their attorneys read that, they said, wait, there's actually something here. And then also we have the governor and Governor Cuomo, and this comes out later and everything. Governor Cuomo ran everything as part of that government. And if Governor Cuomo wanted something done, it was done. And so the governor was out there that summer that we were trying to get this done, seeing the hemp industry was going to be big. The first hemp business is going to be denied. So there was will. But without us providing serious legal justification, which we did. And you know, at the time I was in college. And I was like, I, I may have actually dropped out at that point. So I was like, I'm a college dropout, a few poli sci classes in and really sitting down and thinking about these issues. Yeah, you got to take on the federal government. Who's got time for college when you got to take on the government? <laughs> yeah, precisely. So let, let's get into some of the policy. I appreciate you saying that. Can you take us through your role here in New York State and kind of how you're involved? 
Yeah. So I'm involved in a lot of fronts, right? I'm, um, you know, I've been involved in a lot of different operations throughout the, throughout the past five years. Right now, what I do is I'm the managing director of the Cassiter Cannabis Group. We're a small boutique firm that helps our clients, medium-sized, small businesses throughout the state, understand the regulations, understand the law, and also act on their behalf in terms of government relations and lobbying. So we're a lobbyist. We work with a lot of legacy market operators, and we work with a plethora of different industry operators. We bring an operational understanding to policy and advocacy plan development. I also serve, and I'm a co-founder of the New York Cannabis Growers and Prosper Association. And I serve on their board as vice president and also co-chair the policy committee. So we're the largest trade association in the state. As a, when it comes to cannabis, we have over 250 members. And um, we are essentially a vehicle for these small businesses and the small business interests of the New York cannabis industry to be represented in Albany. So that's what I spend. I spend you know, my days and my time trying to figure out how to effectively communicate to the regulators and lawmakers how to roll this industry out in the way that they promised it would, with emphasis on equity and small business development and craft cannabis. So how do we get there and how do regulations seriously affect that? And that's perfectly said. So I'm going to have to ask, how do we get there? Yeah. yeah, listen, there's a lot of battles that have to be won, right? And they're not just going to be won this year or next year, right? It's over the next. First, what the state needs to do is understand the three largest barriers to entry for any entrepreneur in business, especially the social equity business, the operators. The first one's capital. And the state just announced $200 million in a fund for social equity businesses. That's unprecedented. That's never happened before. So the state gets that, right? And the second barrier to entry is probably real estate, site control. That's a huge barrier. And I think the state is trying to figure out how to address that. And capital, in some ways, can address that. But real estate is a, is a big, big thing. The third one where I'm most focused on is compliance, right? There is absolutely no reason to regulate this industry any more strict than alcohol. There is, there, there is, there's no public health justification for regulating cannabis like a pseudo-pharma, especially when you don't even have those pathways available. You can't even sell cannabis across state lines or as a supplement. But yet you're, we're going to track and trace everything. We're going to have to provide 20 pages of instruction manuals on what to do if you get too high with every single purchase of a product, no billboards. These kind of things are, are bad for the market. And what ends up happening is the only people they benefit are these companies that have in-house compliance teams, the, M, the big MSOs, and those that can rise to an economies of scale where the compliance burdens don't even matter because they shrink the margins so much that everything is focused on top line. If you want small businesses to succeed, you have to allow them to make money without having to worry about their top line being 50 or $100 million because that's just not feasible. So the compliance is a big thing. It's like, you know, how do we, New York is this proving ground of innovation globally in across so many sectors, finance and tech, fashion, food, right? Cannabis can be the same, but if you handicap, if you handcuff these entrepreneurs and what they can and cannot do, that's never going to happen. So that's really from an overall, from a broad level, that is really a big focus is, okay, how do we make sure that things are not overregulated just for the sake of overregulating them or because some regulators are nervous or in many cases undereducated? I don't think there is this, and especially in New York, where I think they want to get it right. They just don't know the issues. They don't know how these issues are all this. And this is where this is why we I decided to step in and, and become a lobbyist and register and work on behalf of these clients because they need to be at the table. We have a right to petition your government. And it shouldn't just be those, the big moneyed interest being able to do so. That's so well said. I, so compliance, I have a question. How much time do you spend 
looking at what's working and what's not working in all the other kind of adult use markets right now. Yeah. So my team spends a lot of time on that, right? I do spend all the time. Really, the, the star of the show in a lot of ways is my director of policy, who's Kate Ruby. And she spends her entire day diving into regs in other states, looking at that, looking at regs in other sectors. We're looking at the alcohol beverage control law here, looking at other you know, ways they regulate different products. But yeah, other states are key to give us insights in what has worked and what's not, and what you can borrow and what you shouldn't be looking at. Massachusetts has gotten so many things wrong in so many ways, but they've also got something, same thing with Illinois, same thing with California, same thing with all these places. So you can find things that have worked and things that haven't worked in, in all these other states. And the, the difficult part of that, though, is that every state has completely different demographics and completely different marketplace that then saying this worked here, so it worked here or it didn't work here, a regulator can go back and go, well, yeah, but we have 20 million people. Or yeah, but it's not quite like that. But uh, we'll look at this other state. So you can go down a rabbit hole and look at other states. And sometimes you just got to block that out and think about what's best for New York. So I want to stay with the educational piece because I think that's so important, especially when you're talking about the lawmakers and people making the decisions. I saw a quote from you, communicating with lawmakers, providing them with data is important. Is that challenging to present the information, let's say, in a simple, clean, understanding way so you're not talking down to them, but you're also communicating the benefits of certain areas? Because that's a really fine line when you're speaking with some of these individuals. Can you take us behind the scenes on how that conversation goes? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two ways that you really have to you know, present this data and experiences, right? From a qualitative perspective and a quantitative. My favorite way of going in with a client is telling my client, listen, be as authentic as possible and explain to them who you are, how you fit into the marketplace with this craft, robust, equity-focused marketplace. And then let's give them some specific examples of how this specific piece of regulation would hurt you as a business or already is. So that's really important. And as that especially works with lawmakers too, because now they really understand their constituency. They're across all these different issues. But to center it with someone with a real life experience, I think is huge. The second part is the data. And right now, one of the major initiatives of the NYCGPA and myself and my clients is getting rid of this potentially disastrous THC tax. It's just absurd. And, and it actually was the brainchild of a former regulator who's not here in New York, a Norm Birnbaum. He's not even here. He's not part of the New York program anymore. And it's a holdover. And on many levels, it, it, it is not going to work. But to explain to the state how changing it won't result in a loss of tax revenue for them and actually could end up with a, a positive bump in revenue forecasting, that's really important because the tax analysts at the state that's all they care about. And the budget director, that's all they care about is continue to balance the budget. They don't want to see, you know, they made these projections and they're like, listen, we made, for instance, we've looked at other states and how when you drop the tax rates, total receipts per capita go up. So that means tax revenue is actually going up. And it's hard to make them understand this, that, hey, listen, you drop the tax revenue, you're going to get people purchasing it more because the illicit market's still here and you have a certain amount of price parity with consumers. Bringing that data in is really important, but the data is sometimes tough. So another example is we're looking at the correlation between California decoupling their tax code from 280E, and then you actually see their, their tax revenues rise. But is that just because more consumers are coming online? Or is that because they decoupled it from 280? Sometimes it's hard to draw correlations in, in, in the data. Yeah, there's so many moving pieces and without kind of like a constant, you can't, you're not tweaking just one variable. There's multiple variables at play here. So continuing on that path, 
Is the THC tax that's financially driven or is that to protect the I don't know. Listen, why they implemented that is beyond me. If you look at their justification last year on why they want, they said to promote temperance. And again, I think that's old guard. You got to understand New York, we have a new governor, completely new way of, of doing things. And, and under the last governor, Governor Cuomo was not a huge supporter of cannabis at all, right? And was very hesitant. And so I think they, whatever regulator thought this up that if we have a THC tax, then like higher potency strains of cannabis won't be purchased by consumers because it'll be more expensive. And yeah, there's a certain amount of truth to that, but there's just so much nuance to why a consumer makes the choice. And in a, I truly believe in a mature marketplace that doesn't have too much regulatory intervention, consumers are going to buy the cannabis that makes them feel the best. And yes, maybe for the first few years, they're going, you're going to see the highest THC strains purchased. But as you start to deregulate the industry and really give them choice and access, they're, they're going to fall into a point where they're going to buy. You know, right now, if you're a consumer, you don't know what the percent of THC is in the, in the bud that you've been buying for 20 years. All of a sudden you do of course, that's going to influence your buying decision. But that's just the beginning. Let's look long-term and, and they're going to want the cannabis that makes them feel the best, that has a brand that they relate to most, maybe provide some social status symbol is where we get into this high you know, quality craft cannabis brand. So yeah, the reasoning behind it doesn't really make sense. I think it's just, it's convoluted, right? It goes down and basically assigns a tax to the milligram of THC in a product. And anyone who's grown cannabis knows that cannabis matures from the top down. And so your bottom buds are going to be a lot, have a lot less um, THC than your top buds. So how you homogenize a sample across an entire batch to get an accurate reading. Uh, also, it, it creates incentives for growers maybe to leave a little more trim on the buds before it goes for testing to get a little lower number. And then you're it just, it's strange. And then edibles are also taxed at a higher rate per TH, per milligram of THC then. So it disincentivizes the purchase of edibles. I, I don't know. So yeah, and if it's a real, truly a public safety approach, then the state should invest in education and not a strange convoluted tax scheme. So yeah, that's, uh, go, I have, yeah, I just because I'm out in Colorado and I'm not <laughs> as close to this THC tax that you guys are, are discussing right now. Um, so there could potentially be a double dipping going on from the government's perspective. So in Colorado, the cannabis that has higher THC concentrations, it's what's called like top shelf, and you pay a premium for that. And so if all cannabis flour is taxed the same, but this flour you pay more for, technically the government's going to get more money for that flour because the percentage of a larger number is going to be a larger number, correct? And so then they're also taxing it on, there's a separate tax then on the THC milligrams present as yeah. well from, that's separate from the sales tax. Am I understand yeah, that correctly? And, yeah. And it gets assessed earlier on in the chain. So it actually gets assessed at the wholesale level. Oh, wow. So you actually have compounding of taxes. So the retail a, tax, yeah. you're paying tax on a tax. That's what I thought. Yeah. I was yeah. like, I just want to make sure we're clear. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, you're paying tax That's on a tax. Unbelievable. Fundamentally, we don't do that in the United States. We don't have a oh. VAT tax in the United States because of that. We don't yeah. compound taxes. So it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So our suggestion is just to increase if they need more tax revenue. You know, right now it's, I believe it's 12.25% or 13.25% is the, the retail sales tax. You can increase that to 20%. I think we're oh, still yeah. in a good zone there. And that, and then remove the excise tax here completely. And I think you have more gross receipts actually coming into the state tax coffers. Yeah. 
It turns out if you just change an Excel sheet number to a higher number, you can really exponentially increase your return. So they're like, look at this. We just changed this number here. Look at the return for us. And it's that's great and dandy, but that's not how real life works. So I want to go back to you. When you have these conversations with these policymakers and you let them know, you overtax the consumer, the one who wants this product. They're going to still purchase their product, but they're going to go back to the legacy market. And you can use, obviously, California is a really strong example. Are they understanding that there's a very thin line or are they more, we don't really care, this is how it's going to work? Meaning, it depends. It depends on who you're talking to. There's all these different stakeholders. There is lawmakers who are very interested in their ag cultural communities. So for instance, Assemblywoman Pardo, I talked about earlier, she's chair of the Ag Committee and Senator Hinch is chair of the Ag Committee in the Senate. And they're interested in their constituencies who we're talking about agricultural communities, growers and processors. But then you have some lawmakers like Senator Liz Kruger, who championed the MRTA. So her constituency is completely different. And what she's thinking about is completely different from then regulators. And some regulators are brought from the Department of Health. Some are being brought over from you know the governor's office, all different places. So you have all these different perspectives and these different you know, stakeholders. And then when you get to the advocacy side, for instance, as an association, we have legacy operators. We have retail, prospective retailers. We have CBD manufacturers. We have growers. We have all these different... So we have to distill what's best for the broad, the overall membership. And the lawmakers and regulators are too. And uh, the reality is sometimes the only intent is, okay, how can we make this a revenue opportunity? Now, what the legislature did though, which is in a lot of ways, great, they allocated the tax revenue. Right. And, and the context behind that, too, with Cuomo and Cuomo and the legislature never really got along. So the legislature always wanted to know where tax revenue was going when they created new mechanisms. And the governor wanted into his discretionary, we call the general fund here in New York State. So there's always this back and forth. And this is the tax issue and where the tax revenue goes was probably one of the most important discussions to legalization actually happening. And that was probably where the lawmakers were most engaged. The Most of the revenue is already allocated. There's community reinvestment fund. Some of it's going into the state lottery fund, which is goes to education. It, it's already allocated. And so, yes, those specific programs, you want to be funded more, but the state isn't looking at the tax revenue from cannabis as helping with any sort of deficits or now we're in a surplus in New York, but adding to the surplus or anything like that. So there isn't that incentive necessarily on the table to increase tax revenue. I really think it's this is an economic and social equality and equity bill at its core. So slightly switching gears, obviously New York is a little behind New Jersey and Connecticut's made some waves for moving faster. Are we going to be that far behind? We, as in New York, when New Jersey comes wreck, and I don't have an actual date, maybe you can share one on the anticipation, but are we going to just allow everyone to cross the bridge and go into New Jersey, or are we going to expedite our process to try to align a little closer together? I think there's reasons why we, we should be trying to move forward and move quickly. I don't see... New Jersey selling products is too much for that. Because the reality is, if you're a New Yorker, why would you go to New Jersey when you can just order from a serve right here in New York? You know what I mean? Like It's like really easy to get good pot in New York, and especially New York City. And then you go out to Western New York, it's very easy. I think that actually maybe create more urgency is that the gray market is now becoming even more sophisticated. New Jersey, I think their speed has created some flaws. For instance, they're not allowing us. So there's some flaws. And then the way that they have a lot of local control of the application process probably isn't the best way to go. Connecticut is like licensing like a dozen licenses across the entire state, which is weird too. If it's going to take a little bit longer for New York to get it right, I'm fine with that. I think a lot of people are too. But no, I think the process in New York is underway. 
right? The regulations are going to be are being drafted. I think we see them sometime maybe in the spring. And uh, then a public comment period is going to commence. And that's the way it should. Public comments, the state has to respond to those comments. And we saw with the hemp extract law, which we've been very engaged with, the state will change their regulations based on the comments. And I think that's what we need. And I think if this year of 2022 serves as the year that New York State figures it out in 2023 is when we launch the marketplace, it's better to get it right than to get it done quick, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's hard to clean up a giant mess and go back and try to fix things than it is to like just build a solid foundation. You know what I mean? Yeah. As tough as that is for you, Brian. <laughs> I mean, sure. And yeah. It's, it's marshmallow test, right? You're right, though. It is, it's super important that we get it right this time instead of going back, especially because we can look to other states who have done it wrong or said they were going to do it right and then did it wrong and then have to walk back the process. And it's really important, especially being the mecca of, of most starting grounds, to, to get it right. So not to put you on the spot, but is there a hopeful anticipation date from an adult use standpoint that we could say, we're targeting this period. I don't know. If you listen to the chair, Tremaine, and this is one of those situations where we're recording at the end of January and it's going to release at the end of February. So things could change. You hear a lot in the news about 18 months, 12 months, rollouts, stuff like that. We're really going to know as soon as the, the, the when, when the regulatory draft package gets released, that's when the timer starts. So I think when they get released, we're looking at about eight months before we start to see applications and licenses really get underway. So if the regs get released next month, then meaning February, by the time this airs, they could be out. I doubt it, but it could happen. There we go. That's when the timer starts. And we're looking at if we're talking about April, we're looking at the beginning of 2023. So fingers crossed, hopeful for adult use purchase before 2023, not on the record, but hopeful. Yeah, I no, I think and, and I think it's plausible too. honestly, I think it's plausible that we see. I don't think we see a full rollout. I don't think you see hundreds of stores throughout the state, but maybe maybe some stores opening up. Also, some businesses are going to take longer than others to of open course. up once they get licensed. And the state also wants to develop these you know, pretty complicated incubator programs, social equity fund. Those are going to take a little bit longer to roll out. So I think we see a rollout over the next three years. And I think three years from now, we are seeing a mature New York marketplace. But yeah, I think you might be able to walk into dispense with just your idea, no med card and in New York and, and buy cannabis before the end of the year. I think that's absolutely on the table. You just, quick question. just before you go, you just made a ton of people very excited and potentially happy. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, so when Washington legalized, they let medical dispensaries apply for recreational license. So and same with Arizona, correct? In terms of it expedites that building up the foundation of storefronts. Is that something that New York has been? So this is the problem. You have 10 licensed medical cannabis companies in New York. We call them ROs, right? The registered organizations. Nine out of 10 are MSOs, right? Uh, now 10 out of 10 are MSOs because one of them was ETAIN, but they don't have a license in New Jersey. So technically they're an MSO, but they are a New York company. It's, we're talking about CureLeaf, Columbia yeah. Care, MedMen, well, MedMen or Ascend, we'll say, to jump off. But, so you have these huge companies, right? And that's antithetical to the ideas of equity and small businesses and craft cannabis. So they're not going to be going first necessarily, but they are all entitled to having a vertically integrated adult use cannabis license at scale, which no one else in the marketplace will be able to do. There's actually, a, uh, there's a cap on vertical integration in New York. So basically the way I explain this is either you can be on the production side or you can be touching the consumer, but you can't do both 
unless you have a micro business, which is like all contained, you sell your own products and there's going to be a cap on production or you're one of these 10 ROs, right? So that issue on when they get to the market and how big and what they can do is a pretty controversial issue. And it's just because they're going to have an outsized advantage in the marketplace. And um, that doesn't line up with the goals of the law. And so I think regulators are trying to balance that out, but they are undoubtedly going to be players in the adult use marketplace, those 10 ROs. What's your feeling on West Coast brands coming East? Obviously, there's always a a West Coast versus East Coast battle. And when we talk about premier brands, the West Coast, some refer to it as the best coast, and maybe you and I can challenge it differently. But when we talk about premier brands, there's a lot of love for West Coast brands based on the positioning and how long they've been in business. But I tend to believe that East Coast is going to have a different messaging, a different marketing scheme because the consumer is different and the experience is different. What's your thoughts on brands going from West to East? You're right. East Coast, East Coast, right? Yes, I didn't have one. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, it's not as good, but it it works. I'm tweeting that out right after. (laughs) (laughs) But listen, I think what makes New York great and New York City specifically is that you can find any brand of any product you want, whether it's clothing, you can find any sort of food that you want, any sort of uh, type of experience you're looking. And I think that will continue into the cannabis market. So absolutely, West Coast brands will have a place in the market. Are they going to dominate? I don't think so. And the reason why is because the consumer is different. Also, I don't know how many real brands have taken serious hold and really have captured consumers the way some of these legacy alcohol brands have, right? Like when you're, you've got people who are Budweiser drinkers through and through to the day they die or highlight, like that is that's reality. I don't think you really have that in cannabis yet. And so it's not like, we're, it's not like that's coming in, right? You know, you do have, you know, cookies and Stizzy and all these other brands, you know, King Louis, you know, but the other thing too, is those brands are available in New York. It might not actually be from those brands, but at least the packaging says it. So we're decently familiar with that, but the consumer is different. And the way we consume is different. It's very social. Um, in New York city, I think things are very status driven too, in terms of what you purchase. A craft, craft conscious consumers are all the rage in New York and Hudson Valley and Western New York. So I do think that New York brands will have an advantage because of that and because of the story they tell. But hey, this is the ultimate proving ground. So if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. So I think New York and I think myself, open arms to West Coast brands. Come, compete. We'll see what happens. May the best brand win. And, and I think we're just, it's going to be a cycle. For the next 10 years is going to be, this brand is popular than this one and this one. And, and I think that's the beauty of it. Yeah, we're still so early on in the process. And for all those West Coast brands that are crushing it, it's not a it's not a diss against you. It's just that the consumer out here is different. They have different interests and they're not exposed to the same type of messaging and experience. So it might take a little while to have that positioning, but it's going to be an exciting to watch, especially to see as, let's say, the market matures as an overall U.S. standpoint, which brands continue to rise in dominance. Yeah, absolutely. I think the culture is different. I think that's yeah, a huge definitely. part of it. It's the culture. Fundamentally. And I wonder if Monogram with their $50 uh, join or blunt, whatever it is, it takes up because that's a really interesting approach. And when you're talking about a specific consumer, that to me plays into that status symbol so well. And I wonder if that rises in popularity here when people have, hey, this is what I spent because it is egregious from a spending standpoint, but for some other people, it's a normal, it's a status symbol. Oh yeah. Luxury brands are going to be, are going to be huge. In New York City, there's people who, you know, won't buy a bottle of wine if it's underneath a and people who won't buy a bottle of wine if it's underneath 500. You can go to the extreme in terms of wealth 
in New York. And, and even those that don't have a lot of wealth are still jockeying for that status. And you can you see it with clothing, right? With alcohol, food. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think luxury brands, I think, are going to have a massive opportunity here in New York. And it'll be interesting. But the reality is sometimes New Yorkers don't want a New York brand. They want a brand that originates maybe California in some ways in the ter- ter- terroir and everything like that. I know you can't you know, to legally bring that cannabis over into New York, but maybe that brand and that brand presence and using Humboldt is similar to using Napa as a brand in, in wine. Who knows? I think, but I think there's a play there for sure. But uh, you're going to have to come, you, you can't come with meds into New York. It's just not going to work. No, you get laughed at. Yeah. All right. What is one statistic or fact about cannabis that would surprise or shock an everyday person? Oh man. Oh, this is a, this is a tough one, Brian. I think a fact or statistic about cannabis. I said it earlier, and I think this surprised me was that cannabis matures from the top down. I don't think that's well recognized and known and that it's not a homogenous product and it won't be right. Flower never will be by nature. You don't create it in a lab, you grow it. And so I think unfortunately, and for, I've been very lucky. My father's a grower. I get to see the colas. Most consumers never see those buds. And when you realize those top buds and those colas are insane, they're dripping with, with, with THC and with flavor and terpenes. So yeah, I think that just fact, peeking behind the curtain for your everyday consumer, that you know, those top buds are something super special uh, that really grow, growers always hold on to their best buds. Yeah. I imagine. Do they market products in a dispensary to identify that's the part of the plant? Because that would be an interesting, unique differentiator when you walk in saying, this is what I'm looking for from a plant standpoint. Do they do that? Not to my knowledge. I know that there's a trick and most cultivators in established adult use markets will send in part of the top bud for analysis. Testing, yeah. And then the whole plant gets sold with the top buds CLA. Exactly. And that's the that's part of the problem. The THC tax is that, yes. you know, most people are getting the B cuts. They're getting yep. the smalls, which is okay. But that's, and that's why I think also, if you go to Colorado and you look at it, the THC usually has, I think that's why too, they're trying to, but, but, uh, but yeah, listen, I think that's a great idea. And I think maybe one of your listeners are going to start selling uh, yeah. cola, <laughs> buy a cola. I think that's an interesting idea from a dispensary because you can have all those colas, then you weigh it because I've had six, seven gram colas before, right? So you weigh it and there's your, you know, 6.4 and you pay per the gram. Okay. Yeah. Talk about like when you walk in and know exactly what you want, you're not interested in, let's say the lower part of the plant. You're looking for like the highest portion. And that's when you talk about putting a premium on a price standpoint, people will oh. pay for whatever, especially because if you don't get it like this one piece, you're not getting it again because it's a limited quantity. It's not like it's a success. That also supports the craft cannabis thought process because then you're going to have all this care and love that goes into crafting this beautiful cola. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Fingers crossed someone does that for us and sends us some samples. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) That'd be sick. (laughs) Kellen, since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? The biggest misconception is just that, you know, it's only about these isolated compounds, right? That the plant is about THC or it's about CBD. And it's just not the case. We're talking about multi-molecule compounds when we talk about supplements, but the flower, the experience, everything goes into it and you just can't neatly put a number on it. And I think that fact right there is known by consumers, especially regular consumers of them as, but it's not well understood by the 
private equity finance bros in the boardrooms. It just, they don't get it. You can't put it on a spreadsheet. You can't quantify that. And I think that's the biggest misconception. I think that's part of the reason why you see such poor performance with these LPs and, and MSOs and publicly traded cannabis companies. I think that's a driving factor is that they miss the point. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you can sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? I think you gain so much from hearing all these people's perspectives and never assuming that all about even the, the most specific of any issue. And when I policy, I'm, I'm learning new things every single day from people you wouldn't even think of, right? Even people all the way down the, the chain, even all the way down to the bud tender and the trimmer, right? When you learn these things and these experiences, I think that arms you to be a lot better at, at your job, whatever it is, even if you're not looking at developing policy and advocacy platforms, is listening and, and, and never trying to be the smartest person in the room. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, you're, in the, room. you're in the wrong room. You're in the wrong yep. room. No. <laughs> all right, prediction time. Will New York become the largest cannabis market in the United States? If so, when? If not, why not? Yes, by 2026. I quick. thought about this. Yeah, all right. <laughs> but absolutely, yes. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a big reason why uh, is because we get tens of millions of visitors to New York every single year. Mm. And that, I think, is the biggest thing. We don't have the population of California. And obviously, California has a thriving tourism sector and everything like that. In New York, people come here to spend money and leave. So, good luck. I'm going to go with California just from a straight population standpoint. I think they'll end up getting their act together. The laws are written for big business. And my one caveat is... California in other industries is known as an agricultural mecca. And the mo like the moment federal legalization passes and interstate commerce occurs, I mean, I think every single derivative product in terms of vape pens, edibles, anything that isn't flour can be grown on a mass scale, like they do almonds or other industrial commodity crops. And I think at that point, it's going to be really challenging for any other state, including Oregon, Washington, Colorado, to compete with just the sheer amount of agricultural land that California has access to. And because of that, I think it's going to be challenging from a market size for any other state to even compete with the just gross quantity of cannabis that can be grown in California. I mean, California has been the mecca of cultivation for the last 35 years. I and mean, they're not going to go down without a fight. You know that right now. What do you think? Oh, yeah. But, but I, I would say, Kellen, I do think, I would say California will have a bigger industry than New York, but I think a lot of that production will go and be sold in New York. So that's why oh, yeah. the marketplace 100%. in New York will be end up being larger than, than California. That's a good point, honestly. People come to New York to spend money is the epitome of a perfect quote because it is absolutely out of control. I had friends that would come and stay with me when I lived in the city and they would just buy everything they could. And it was as if they would never have a chance to come back. And it just, there's a different aura or energy when people walk around the city, when they just get just overtaken by that feeling. And you're right. I think New York, I would guess 2028, maybe a little more pessimistic than normal for me, but I think it'll take us a little time to change some of the stigmas and get those businesses up and running. I think in the short term, the biggest problem New York's going to have is going to be a shortage of product. I think that they're going to consistently be running out of product and it's going to frustrate consumers 
And at the end of the day, the market, as you were saying, is going to take a little time to roll out because we want to do it correctly, which isn't a flaw of the market or the space. It's just a timing issue. So in that aspect, I think by 2028, when everyone's absolutely ripping, I think the numbers will just be absolutely out of control. I totally agree. I think it's going to be undersupplied for years. Yeah. And I think that's hard for some people, especially here in New York. They're like, why? Why do we think that we know that's going to be a problem already? And it's because there has to be limitations just given that the rollout and the process, it takes some time. Learn, it takes some time to learn how to grow too. And, and that's the biggest thing. I, we might have a supply, ample supply of meds, but we're not going to have a, a good enough supply of quality buds for years, in my opinion. Agreed. So. Yeah. They're going to have to just bring migrate all the big growers out here. Yeah. Or the good growers, not the, the big good growers. growers. The, good, yeah, growers. Yeah, the, good the great exactly. growers. The great yes. growers. Yes. <laughs> so, Kellen, for our listeners that want to learn more, they want to get in touch, where can they reach you? Yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Go to our website, castatorcannabis.com and reach out through the footer or come to me directly. And yeah, we'd love to chat. If you're looking to enter New York, you're looking to collaborate with businesses in New York, uh, you have some services that you think might be great for some of my clients or whatever, just uh, reach out. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link it up in the show notes. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.